I think that we should have a rise in art criticism and also be unashamed to protect and promote high culture. I think that what you find is that um, the leaders of some of our historical museums have lost faith in classical culture, in the canon. They're ashamed of the canon. They've been told it's uh, too pale, male and stale. Today on British Thought Leaders, I sit down with Alexander Adams, artist, art critic and cultural commentator. Alexander's latest book examines the aim, spread and origins of artivism. He says this fusion of art and activism is putting the very existence of our cultural institutions at risk. I'm Lee Hall and this is British Thought Leaders. Alexander Adams, thank you for joining us on British Thought Leaders. Well, thank you, Lee. Your latest book, um, which I thoroughly enjoyed, I'm not an artist in any way, but from a kind of cancel culture perspective, it was really interesting. It's called Artivism, the Battle for Museums in the Postmodern Era. Should you start by telling us uh, what artivism is in this context? Well, artivism is a combination of activism, political activism, and art or spectacle. So you'll find that something like um, uh, Extinction Rebellion's big performances where they get up in uh, crazy costumes and they have the strong makeup and it's all been carefully choreographed, that would be an example of artivism. So that's artivism in favour of um, environmental concerns projected by um, Extinction Rebellion. Um, the origins of artivism come about in, usually people say the 1960s, so this would be the Vietnam War, reaction against the Vietnam War. You also have a rising of um, Chicano artists in the 1970s. They were painting murals in South California. And then you also have some activism happening in the 1970s in New York. And now people define artivism as anything from making posters to defacing posters. They would also say things like that uh, artivism is setting up a soup kitchen in a gallery or turning a, a restaurant into a gallery. So it's a sort of, it's a fusion of life and art, um, but it's all clearly directed towards a certain political goal. Okay. So the thing that you, you're kind of um, taking issue with in the book is not so much putting politics into art. You give examples, for, um, for example, Victorians using their art to highlight social political problems and things like that. But it's this um, activism that's taking the resources that are meant for art, meaning that artists don't get the resources. Yes, I think the problem is that once you accept that politics can override art in the fact that you can put political change above um, aesthetics, what you've done is you've prioritised the message over the form. And once you do that, it's very difficult to say, well we should have a space that's just for art. So how can you ever go back to exhibiting watercolour landscapes if you've devoted a space to migrant crisis or supporting earthquake victims and so forth? How can you ever step back from that activism and just say, oh no, this is just going to be art, this is going to be pretty pictures or this is going to be abstract art or this um, artist has a very personal vision of the world and we're going to explore that. I've um, compared artivism to putting a pike in a carp pool, that pike will consume everything. It's absolutely remorseless. Um, it only knows about survival and consumption of resources. It will never back down. It will never say, well, okay, we're going to take a step back from um, political activism, from a message, from driving a particular movement. 
we'll take a step back for six months, nine months, and you can have regular art in your gallery. No, it's absolutely insistent. You talk about artivism being in danger of engulfing the world of art, if you like, the, the pike eating or the carp. How do we get to this point where, rather than artists expressing their, their craft and their skills, we've got activists kind of parading as artists, if you like? Well, I think one of the things is that once you have the rise of postmodernism, you can start doing art that doesn't look like art and indeed in many senses is not art. So you've blurred the line, so you've allowed the activists into the art space because you have no way of refusing them. You have no way of saying, no, this isn't art, because if you're a postmodernist or if you follow those beliefs, then you find that you can accept almost anything. Um, so you have non-art materials, you have ordinary activism, you have everyday life, you have everyday materials being uh, appropriated. Also, what you find is that um, since the de-skilling of universities, um, a lot of artists don't actually know how to make what they're doing. They're outsourcing this to technicians, to manufacturers and so forth. Now, in the past, you had artists like Raphael, and Raphael had a big studio. He had lots of assistants who were making works for him. Paintings, drawings, um, commissions, so he was getting frescoes painted. He wasn't actually standing up at the wall painting the pictures himself, but he was guiding the designs. Now, the difference is that um, Raphael knew how to do everything that his assistants were doing. The difference now is that artists today don't understand the techniques or materials that their assistants are using, so they become very detached. I think also that um, technology is a big problem. It leads to people losing concentration and uh, losing connection to materials. Um, I think this is especially true if you're working with computers. Um, so what happens is that people um, tend to lose a sense of um, art as a mission to communicate truth, because truth can be so easily manipulated through technology. Um, that's why I think that uh, a lot of art goes astray today. The example that you give uh, where, with Raphael, with the, the, the studio, um, and then the modern day where people are, don't have the technical skills anymore, what can happen in between to allow us to move from A to B? Well, what happens is once the universities have stopped teaching the skill, you get this sense that um, art doesn't need to be based on skill or craft. Uh, and in fact, you're actually actively encouraged to feel cynical or to detach yourself from that appreciation of materials. So you have artists who are absolutely scared of developing a signature style. So that's why they employ different um, methods, so they can move between materials. They do videos, they do photographs, they do installations. Um, they work through other people. And this leads to more distance. Um, I think that what we should do is start, we should have a revival in art criticism. And then you'll get sort of art of today subject to really rigorous public discussion and criticism. Um, I think it's very difficult now. You ask most people in Britain to name a famous art critic and they'll probably say, oh, Brian Sewell. Brian Sewell's been dead for, you know, going on for 10 years now. Um, I think that we should have a rise in art criticism. And also be unashamed to protect and promote high culture. I think that what you find is that um, the leaders of some of our historical museums have lost the faith in classical culture, in the canon. They're ashamed of the canon. They've been told it's uh, too pale, male and stale. And now that they're stepping back, they're focusing more on community outreach and so forth, which I think is a great shame. I think that we should be very proud of what we've achieved in the West. 
Is artivism and probably modern art generally a left-wing endeavour, would you say? Uh, I think that a lot of left-wing people are drawn to it because it breaks boundaries, because it, um, it opposes tradition, um, it can oppose the church, it can oppose the status quo. Um, it's a great vehicle for um, suggesting social change or political change. It's interesting, actually, a lot of the groundbreakers are actually reactionary. Um, so people like um, um, Edward Munch, for example, I think, believed in a perennialist, vitalist strain. He was looking at life and he was thinking of some very bleak things, unchanging things about death, mortality, jealousy, anger, loneliness and so forth. And these are essential primal human emotions and they're not going to be um, changed by uh, social systems or by conditioning or by uh, improving welfare. These things are eternal and they have to be faced and it's part of the human condition. So a reactionary like Monk has been not painted out of the picture but he's been, his forceful message has been sort of diluted a lot. So I think that uh, the left tends to claim a lot more of the advances that are actually um, quite widely distributed on the political spectrum. So I remember um, uh, recalling back a passage from your book. It talked about that you never see any artivism referring to traditional marriage or um, anti-abortion or, or being against immigration or any of these kind of more conservative values. Um, why is that? Well, I find it really interesting when the left says everything is political um, and maybe you say, oh, OK, let's do some activism from the other side. Let's have um, someone putting their politics into art uh, in the form of something uh, being in favour of the traditional marriage. I've never seen art. I've been to lots of exhibitions and I've never seen any art that's strongly pro-marriage or essentially about the importance of Christianity as a foundation stone for British culture or scepticism towards abortion or even you find that there was this uh, survey which said that the I think it was over 90% of people involved in the arts were opposed to Brexit even something as banally political as that it's amazing that I've never seen any art in a public gallery which is in favour of Brexit or opposed to abortion, for example, and I would say that this is entirely due to the politics of the venues, the curators, but I'd also say it's to do with where the money's coming from. I think that if you had conservative organisations putting money into this, I think you'd find a lot of artists who would be interested in talking about those values, the pro-Christianity, pro-marriage, pro-nuclear family side. I think you'd find a lot of artists perfectly capable of making strong art, passionate art, and very persuasive art, maybe in the form of artivism in those areas, but because you don't see the funding for that, and also because I think that conservatives are not minded to think in terms of artivism, that's why you're not seeing it. I think even if it was made, you'd still have trouble getting it into a public space, into a public museum, because those museums are run by people who are politically inclined towards the left. Is there such a thing as right-wing artivism? Well, the problem is that you've got two parts of the right-wing. You've got the conservative part, which is definitely not involved in artivism. It's quite wary of all sorts of contemporary art, avant-gardism, um, new forms, uh, memes, internet, internet sort of drama, um, 
being um, playful, being um, mocking, um, disputing things and irony and so forth. And that's not really the conservative way. The conservative way is to step back, it's to move into tradition, it's to uphold Christian values and Western tradition and the canon and so forth and craft and skill and there's a place for that. But you do have this reactionary element which is more postmodern, they're more willing to be playful, they're more willing to take on the left, um, they're not going to make compromises and they're not going to apologise. Uh, I feel quite a lot of sympathy with that view. Artivism is not necessarily a left-right divide, but it tends to attract the left a lot more, and of course they've got huge institutional support, which means that what you are getting to see in public spaces is all left because it's funded by the left, and that's the establishment. Right. You talk about these um, the cultural institutions. Uh, they were developed to preserve and transmit essential values but they've become the kind of destroyer of these values. How did this institutional capture happen? Well, I think a good starting point for that is your interview with David Curtin of the Heritage Party, where he talked about uh, the Frankfurt School and how critical theory entered uh, academia. Um, that's certainly one route. So the left has something that it calls praxis, which is putting theory into practice, applying it in the real world, making change with it, not just talking about theory, but actually moving resources, capturing institutions. So you have the long march through the institutions, which is a form of praxis. Um, I talked about um, something called cultural entryism. My first book was called Culture War, Art, Identity, Politics and Cultural Entryism. And what I discussed in that book was the way that um, activists had moved into all sorts of institutions and they didn't have the institution's best interests at heart. They had a political motive, they had a strong message that they wanted to convey, they were progressives through and through, and they didn't care if they undermined the trust of the institution, they didn't mind if they contravened its uh, mission statements or its regulations or the charity sector's regulations, for example. They were on a mission to apply their beliefs and they weren't going to stop. And they had, because they had no loyalty to any organisations, that they were willing to essentially burn down those organisations, to discredit them if they couldn't get what they want. And then they simply moved to another place. So, for example, we find all sorts of museum directors or um, cultural organisation directors being fired but because they're going too far, not because the organisation disagrees with them, but because the optics are bad. So you had Stefan Kalmar moving from the ICA after he had seemingly um, used funds for fine art for political purposes, and he was uh, essentially forced to resign. Now he's in a new job in a different institution in a different country. He suffers no consequences. So when activists in these organisations see that there are no consequences. They know that they can go as, as far as they like and then when things get bad they simply move to a different organisation in Montreal or Basel or Miami or Stockholm. There's no comeuppance for them. Do you have some other examples of British institutions that have experienced this, this kind of capture? Well I would say one of the prime institutions is the Tate. The Tate is the National Museum of British Art as well as being a modern art museum. Um, it's under the control of the director, Maria Balshaw. Um, she's a feminist. Um, she was working up in the north of England uh, in museums doing more activist work there. Well, she was more activist inclined, very progressive in her outlook. Um, now, if you go into the Tate, you'll find lots of work 
collected specifically because they want to address imbalances, as they see, in quotas. So they think there are not enough women in the collection, there are not enough black people, there are not enough uh, migrant people who are working in Britain in the um, collection of the, National, of the National Gallery of British Art, which is the Tate Gallery. Mm. So you're seeing a big rise in that. Uh, also, um, organisations such as the Arts Council, um, which I've recently written a pamphlet about, which is Abolish the Arts Council, um, they're working on the basis of um, quotas quite a lot of the time. Um, I was speaking recently to uh, an artist friend and she was saying how she applied for a grant from the Arts Council and she was shocked and disheartened at filling in this form how little there was about art in it that a lot of it was to do with politics or the identity of the maker and so forth. And I think that she was very discouraged. Also, you have institutions like the Museums Association, which is um, the leading professional body for museums in this country. It promotes change. It's got a progressive outlook. It's um, celebrating and promoting decolonization. It's uh, in favor of um, the reparations, that is, the return of objects from the colonial era to the country of origin. Um, they recently did um, a conference in November where they had a panel of um, all Muslim women um, and they were saying that uh, a photograph from uh, the 1930s, I think it was, of uh, museum staff in Glasgow, who were of course all white and all male, that they didn't see themselves represented there and that this somehow gave them a right to make changes now to make the institutions of the past accord to the way they saw things today. Also you've got organisations such as the Art Fund which was originally set up to buy um, sculpture and paintings for museums. That's now transformed into um, a body which is actually rewarding museums for not doing art. Recently, yeah, recently they put money towards uh, the Horniman Museum in London because it had set up a festival of black music um, festival of black music, well that's fine, but why is it in a museum? Um, and why is it getting this money? Uh, certainly it could get sponsorship from any number of companies uh, involved in the sort of pop music scene or the pop culture scene. Why is it happening in a museum? I think that's because people have lost faith in high culture and a divide between high culture and pop culture. Pop culture is perfectly fine in its place, but once it starts moving into high culture then where is the space for high culture? How are you going to defend that and protect those resources? So it's the real battle here, actually, between this kind of art world elite, for want of a better term, the people with the purse strings who decide what art will be put on display in the big institutions, and, and the public who are kind of, must feel such a disconnection between a lot of the art that's provided now. Are, are these people trying to kind of enforce their values on, onto the public somehow? I think you find that uh, elites tend to rule in all eras through kings, dictators, theocracies or even democracies. You find that the people at the top don't tend to change. So I think that we will always have an elite, but I think the problem now is that the elite is so detached and hostile towards the population. I don't think that this has happened in the past. The way I see the elite is very aggressively undermining the British majority that is, uh, the population, the people, its history, the culture, and being very, very destructive towards that. And I find that quite troubling. 
I think in the past you had elites and they were certainly distant and sometimes their customs and their values were different from the majority. But I don't think there was such um, a degree of contempt towards the average person in that time. You've mentioned cultural Marxism and, and things along those lines. What, what role does feminism have in, in today's uh, contemporary art world? Well, feminism is absolutely at the core because it was there at the birth in the 1960s and 1970s. Um, Lucy Lippard said that um, the intention of feminism was to change the character of art. So it was repurposing art to make cultural changes and it was to do with the emancipation of women uh, Recently, you've seen that morph into a strong women's art lobby. So this is essentially getting exhibitions, getting funding for women artists, specifically because they are women. This has uh, caused a strange situation where you have uh, the victim legacy, the foundational myth, which is that women are mistreated. In the past, I found that there were artists like uh, Judith Leister, who was um, a Dutch painter working at the same time as Rembrandt, and her work was very highly valued. And there were other artists, uh, like the daughter of Tintoretta, was also very highly valued as a portrait painter. And they did very well, and I was quite surprised that there was this uh, victim narrative that women were excluded from art, and I found that there were quite a few women who did quite well in the past and became quite wealthy and recognised and became court painters. And then when I was looking at the figures today for... Um, artists, women artists in galleries, I found that actually that women in art galleries um, essentially uh, amounted to about 45% and they form about 45% of the group of working artists today. So they're actually not underrepresented and they tend to win more prizes and they have more exhibitions based around them being women than there are exhibitions based around artists being men. So actually women are not disadvantaged but they do get a lot of the funding and a lot of the kudos accrued by victim narrative which has carried on from the past when it actually may have applied more. It certainly doesn't apply now. So you find that feminism is very much linked to the idea of women being promoted as women artists because they are victims. So we're going back to the identity again rather than the kind of quality of the art and, and things like that. Yes, it's, it's quite discouraging for young male artists, especially if they're white, especially if they're straight, it's very difficult for them. If What can you say to them that they should have to step aside because of their privilege, um, when in fact they've not had any privilege at all? They're stepping aside in favour of women colleagues who they've been at art school with, and those women have never experienced any prejudice. They've never been barred from entering uh, public exhibitions, they're not barred from entering professional societies. So why are these men having to step aside for these women who have not suffered discrimination? I think the problem is that once you start retrospectively punishing people because of historical injustice, as it were, you're punishing per people who are perfectly innocent. So those people um, who would create that art, what are they doing now? Are they just they're, they're kind of dormant because there's no funding for them to do things? Well, I would say um, they either blow with the wind, so they've either gone neutral or they're perhaps doing work that they don't really believe in, or they simply lose the, leave the art field completely. I know I've spoken to lots of young artists who ask me for advice and they say, well, I really don't know if I can get on in this art world. And I say to them, have to, you have to be honest with yourself if you're not willing 
to stand by your values, then you may be better off leaving the field. You may be better off going into technology, going into design, going into graphics and so forth, because you're going to be going into a field that is absolutely hostile to what you believe in. Um, so if you want to have a clean conscience, you may have to leave the field. Maybe you'll only be able to work in an amateur profession, uh, and an amateur way, I mean, uh, in a part-time way. Uh, I think that's a tragedy, because I think we're seeing lots of really talented artists just not go into the art field because they feel excluded due to their demographics or because of their politics. From an ethics point of view, um, you've got this, these funds that's meant for creating art, but activists are, are taking that and using it for stuff that's not art, which is kind of robbing the artists from their ability to create art, but also robbing the public for the, the public funds from the art that they should expect to receive at the end of it. So what, what can be done to try and fix this situation? Well, uh, apart from a major culture change, um, where you would have a, a complete replacement of the elite at the top, which is quite an ambitious program, I should imagine. You can do things like you can force institutions not to do this. You can actually apply regulations as they exist. So the charities um, sector is riven by activist organisations which claim to be charities, and so they're surviving um, tax-free. Um, they get all sorts of other benefits. They don't have to go through the degree of scrutiny that other companies might have to. And they can use their money in order to push their beliefs. And yet the regulations uh, that apply to them, the Charities Act of uh, 2011, is not being properly enforced by the Charities Commission of England. So you find that lots of these organisations are actually contravening this statute which says that they should not engage in political campaigning. But I've complained to the Charities Commission uh, on a number of occasions and got no reply. They're not interested in enforcing the regulations because temperamentally and politically they are completely aligned with the progressives, with the elite who are pushing these values and distorting, I would say, overstepping the regulations that should apply to these charities. Um, so have a go at pushing the charities to conform to regulations. Um, I would say abolish the Arts Council. I would also say we need to try and step away from the public model of funding. Try and be more independent. If we set up a new organisation, new institutions that are backed directly from patrons, private money, crowdsourcing and so forth, then we'll be able to get sort of new vigorous art which gets past the political watchdogs that are now currently running our organisations, our public organisations at least, and that will provide a vital alternative. It feels like there's a really big story there, that they're not fulfilling their charitable objectives, and even when you raise it to the regulator, nothing is being done. It's quite surprising. Well, I think that once you look at DCMS, which is the, the Department for Culture, um, you can see that they're not interested in this subject either. Um, we're on to a new cultural secretary. It's the 15th in 16 years. They, they can't even manage 13 months on average. Um, so that shows you what priority the government has. There's going to be no change from the government because the government doesn't believe in that. Uh, the DCMS, especially the civil service, who are completely staffing the Arts Council and the various other charities, they're all essentially, they're not collaborating 
actually, they just have parallel values. They all have the same values of liberalism, progressivism, multiculturalism, um, support for abortion, support for mass migration, and so forth. They all think alike, they all vote alike, they all read the same newspapers, they're all completely on board with the agenda of the BBC and a lot of the mass media. So they don't have to share their values explicitly, they implicitly know their values. So they're all working towards the same end, and I'm afraid the Charities Commission is um, in that group as well. In your book you have a, a chapter on Banksy, which I thought was kind of interesting. Um, and what I took from it was that Banksy is not this kind of counterculture figure that he is put forward as. He's actually kind of part of the establishment these days, um, which makes sense to me. But I thought it just reflects society in general. Uh, I remember when I was young, if someone had tattoos and piercings, they were kind of a bit of a rebel, and it's like, oh, they're a bit different. And then now, if you don't have tattoos, everyone feels like, what's wrong? Why, why aren't you joining the gang? Everyone's got them. It's, it's almost like we're kind of full circle. Um, even to the point where you have to wonder if young people want to rebel these days, they have to become maybe an Orthodox Christian or something like that. Yeah, absolutely, yes. Uh, I think that uh, Paul Joseph Watson has said that uh, conservatives are the new counterculture. Um, that's true to a degree. I think that conformism is extremely powerful. Um, I spoke to... Uh, a young woman who was studying museum um, technology, museum sort of uh, practice uh, for her doctorate, and she said that she was like it was like living in an occupied country because she be like, believed in presenting the culture, in being excited by objects. Uh, she was interested in aesthetics. Um, she was sort of socially conservative, and she felt like um, she sort of joined a political school, a political rally, and everything was talking about uh, Foucault and um, critical theory and so forth, and it felt completely alien to her. Um, I feel very sorry for those people. Those people are not going to join the institutions, the museums of tomorrow. Um, and what we're also happening now is we're losing the old guard, the old guard of um, historians and the sort of savants who were real specialists in the arts. Um, they're just retiring out and they're being replaced by people who have been through university in the last 20, 30 years, and they are all committed to a certain worldview. It's very difficult to dissent in the museum world and in the art world in general. It's, um, it's quite shocking. I think there's a lot of people out there who are kind of like us and worried about the state of the arts and, and things like that. Do you have any recommendations for what they can do, where they can go, what, what things they, they can look at to kind of try and keep things going? Well, I would say um, stay local. Um, try not to get too involved in the national scene because a lot of the national organisations, they are organised and they're run by essentially the civil service. So the DCMS, uh, the Arts Council and so forth. So do something local. Um, work with local groups, get involved in the local scene, join local um, drawing groups, so life drawing groups or landscape groups, um, even get involved in the street art scene, um, because at least that way you're independent. Um, and I've spoken recently to um, a lot of fine artists and we're getting together a dissident art movement which will um, offer an alternative, 
um, where we actually believe in the power of art as art and we're not depending on our demographics. Um, we're not particularly political, so you won't go into one of our exhibitions and see political slogans or political messages, but I think that what you'll do is you'll see great art and you'll think, well, that's a good alternative to what I can find in my local art gallery. Alexander Adams, thank you for joining us on British Thought Leaders. It's been a pleasure.